The opportunity individual practitioners have with working with corporates is you have immediate access to lots of people. You have an audience. You're listening to Build a Better Wellness Biz. I'm your host, Jeremy Enns. In this episode, I'm talking with Ash Day. I run a company called Open Mind, and we're trying to solve the main challenges workplaces have around delivering inclusive well-being programs for their employees. We connect workplaces to a marketplace across the UK of vetted providers. We administer the end-to-end for both the providers and the workplace, and we measure and report on the impact and we use those insights to help evolve the wellbeing program and support both the company, the employees, and the wellbeing providers we work with. While OpenMind primarily operates in the UK, through the course of building the company, Ash has come to know the ins and outs of how independent wellness professionals anywhere can tap into opportunities to run events and workshops within large organizations. While companies like his can help facilitate this matchmaking process, in this episode, Ash shares how it's entirely possible to seek out these opportunities on your own. As part of your first meeting with a client, ask them what they're already doing. Ask them what sessions have worked well and what hasn't worked well, and see if you can understand why. If you are an individual who has a broad range of offerings, sit with the company and say, this is what I offer. How about we just run a poll and see what people are interested in, just to try and get your foot through the door. We also talk about the power of the communities that often form around these workplace wellness programs. What we saw was people became supportive of each other within that space. And then that naturally became a community. So it's thinking about how can you form those communities, whether they're within workplaces or just in your own ecosystem. How can you start adding value and creating a safe space for both yourself to share what you do and the impacts you're having, but also for those who are receiving your offerings to share what they're finding. And we also talk about some of the big picture societal challenges facing practitioners, employers, and employees when it comes to wellness. Part of accessibility is back to affordability. It's one of those sad realities where money is the driving factor for, for a lot of things. So even though you may have the best intention, the biggest barrier to entry, whether it's a company doing something or an individual, is money. So how can we remove those barriers? And again, we've been thinking creatively and have models to remove those barriers again. To start off the conversation, I wanted to know what types of offerings were organizations looking for? The types of practitioners we work with are from sole traders, individual practitioners, SMEs and charities. And each one of them has different levels of support in terms of what they're looking for and types of offerings they offer to workplaces. In terms of what we've seen really popular over over the last year, pre-COVID and during COVID, is the rise in social and group and community-based activities. So previously, there was a big focus on awareness and education around mental health, around nutrition, around sleep, more and more around men's health as well. One thing COVID has done, which is a positive, is brought the focus back to social connection, social interaction. So if any of the listeners are working in spaces around bringing people together and building communities and micro communities, whether it's in a wider ecosystem or within a workplace, I think the time's now for them to shine because companies are craving ways to connect, whether it's right now it's virtually, but we will go back to on site in a matter of time. 
Okay. And so for the individual practitioner, um, whether it's like a yoga instructor or somebody who works with, I know you mentioned hormones or sleep or nutrition or any of these things, like what are some of the benefits? I think that this is a, like approaching bigger companies is not something that is a natural thought that comes into somebody's mind. And it might feel like too difficult to to even like put any time or, or effort into. So like, what are some of the benefits if they can figure this out and, and get build these relationships? If I take our practitioner base, there's, they, they fall in two camps. One area where they already have relationships with corporates or workplaces. So speaking to them, the way they've, they've gone about it is pull out the old yellow pages or Google and just contacting workplaces and seeing, are you offering X, Y, or Z in terms of an offering? And saying two or three benefits of that service and putting it out there. Those individuals have been so proactive. We, we as a company, also rely on their support, and I'll explain that in a moment. Many of the practitioners, and this is where the vast majority sit, are those who have tried approaching workplaces, and they get shut down. They get shut down because they're an individual practitioner, and the administration behind and levels of, are you insured, are you vetted, you have to get through health and safety processes, how are you credentialized, all the admin that surrounds it, initially getting a conversation, but then after you've got the conversation, getting you onboarded through payroll, a lot of companies are put off by that. So I would say for those practitioners, think about the target audience. Avoid the bigger companies because there's more levels of red tape. Go for the SMEs, the smaller companies, the charities. Their decision time, decision process is much quicker. The other thing it allows them to do is build better lasting relationships with both the employer who's organizing it, but also the students and participants compared to the bigger organizations. The other way we've seen and the way we work is how can we support these practitioners find aggregators? So companies like Open Mind, but there are others out there, yoga agencies and wellbeing collectives, which can help individuals access companies. So this is where I think in the space of workplace well-being over the next year or two, we're going to see the evolution of wellness aggregators. And those will be the gateways to both enterprises and SMEs. And it's going to be interesting to see how they all differentiate themselves in that time. Yeah. And I think that like it feels as a society and especially in like the business world, maybe this is just my being more interested in this side of things, but that there is kind of an evolution going on where businesses are really recognizing the value of providing these wellness services and there's like a hunger for it. And I feel like HR is kind of evolving and being more empowered and like businesses are, are especially in the tech space, you know, they've kind of set the standard there, but I think that's trickling down to other businesses as well that are are really looking to, to do better to support their employees and are kind of seeing that that has results for the business themselves. And so I think that there's this growing actually like need and hunger on these larger enterprises and small and medium-sized businesses, like you mentioned, to find people to deliver these services, but they might not have an easy kind of time to do it. And so I think, like you're saying, those aggregators are going to be more and more important, but also even as individuals, like actually like listing out some companies in your area or however you're doing that, maybe that's remotely, but actually taking the effort to go and reach out and say like, hey, this is something that I know helps companies perform better. And if you've done that in the past, you might have some more data, but it sounds like that's something that you guys really help with on the back end. Absolutely. And just, I want to give one example of a teacher. So a yoga teacher, meditation teacher I spoke to about two weeks ago. She lives in Canary Wharf 
And her approach has been speaking with the local schools within walking distance of her apartment in Canary Wharf. And for her, that's been her gateway to find opportunities. What's walking distance, businesses and schools, because that's where she wants to focus, to find opportunities. So just you can go onto Google and scroll endlessly at companies and write emails, but also local. I think COVID has also driven a focus on how do you support the local SMEs, small businesses out there. In terms of what you were just saying around the focus and the appetite around well-being and how it's been increasing. So business in the community, an organisation in the UK, in 2018 published some stats around is well-being on the boardroom agenda. Back then it was on four in ten workplaces boardroom agendas. 2019, five in ten, 50%. COVID, probably on everyone's agenda now. The stats haven't been published. But there's a difference between being on the agenda and then actually doing something about it. And you quite rightly said the tech companies, the scale-ups in terms of organisations, where they generally have younger workforces, where there is a big focus on wellness and inclusion from the get-go, they are leading the way. They are leading the conversation around personalization and what individuals within an organization want. And that's leading to something we're passionate about, which is communities and building communities within workplace and creating that sense of belonging. That said, with the enterprises, they're they're starting to have to think differently. So one of our clients, I won't name which one, recently reevaluated their well-being proposition. Previously, they had been spending millions of pounds a year on gym memberships. So part of their strategy was, let's stop the gym memberships because we don't need them anymore. And even then, the utilisation wasn't that high. Let's create a saving for the company, but then let's reinvest some of that into another wellbeing proposition based on what the employees are asking for. So again, workplaces are going through this evolution. But I also think for practitioners and wellbeing providers, we need to get better at speaking the language of business if we want to work with business. So I think someone beautifully said to me, when pitching to companies, don't pitch from the perspective of this is going to cost you money. Pitch from the perspective of this is a cost saving to your business. Um, thinking of what's the cost to your business of sick leave and absenteeism and presentism. Pitch it from the perspective of this can save you money. I think one Deloitte stat, which they published, republished in tw- early 2020, just before COVID, was that the cost of absenteeism, presenteeism for a workplace is about £1,500 per annum. If you scale that number up to the number of employees in a company, that's a huge cost to a business. So if you can pitch it, say, if you know an organisation is 20 people and you roughly know that stat, uh, which is backed up by a whole number of research papers, you can quickly work out what it's costing that business. You can then say, for the cost of a yoga session each month or the cost of a wellbeing session each month, there's not a huge exchange there. You'll see the value in a matter of months. Yeah. And then you get into even like employee retention and all these things, which that is, uh, I mean, 
for anyone who's listening who has hired people and had to replace people, that is a huge headache and expense in time and money and all these things. So I think uh, if, if you've gone through that yourself, you recognize the value of you know keeping your people happy and not having to do that every month or two months or, or however long it is. So yeah, I, I can see that there is a ton of value there. I'm curious when it comes to the actual programs themselves. So what is the structure that, you know, really works well for these types of companies? And then like, how often are they being run? What's the kind of price points? Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm going to say an old consulting phrase, uh, which you'll dislike, which is there's no one size fits all. Um, Every (laughs) company is so unique. But that said, I think from a company perspective, before spending, investing loads of money on a well-being program, ask your people what they want. Because by doing that, you'll understand what is their focus right now. One more little anecdote from a client we work with where they have multiple sites across the UK and they asked for every site what they wanted. Some sessions focused around, can we have sessions around menopause? Can we have some sessions around hit classes? One site asked, can we have a radio? And it's just so different. And for them, for their office, it was just deadly silent and they wanted a radio in the office. That's what their, what their need for, their, for them right now was. So I would say invest the time to ask what your employees want within reason. And you can structure it through some creative and structured surveys, forums, coffee meetings. But in terms of answering the question, what is working well in terms of programs and price points. So far from our data, we can see that if we go to a workplace and suggest a yoga and meditation series of programs, we know that from our data that 8 to 14% of their employee base will be interested in yoga and meditation. So quite quickly, quite quickly with that workplace, you can start talking about the value to those 8 to 14% and you can scale it and work it out depending on the size of organization you're talking to. Um, in terms of price points, I'll part that for a note in a moment. But in terms of other types of sessions, we take the approach of building up a wellness program based on what their employees are saying. So we know 8 to 14% are increased interested in yoga and meditation and mindful practices. We are then looking at, okay, what percentage of the employee base are interested in mental health, specific conversations, gut health, nutrition. And this is where it varies workplace to workplace because it very much depends on the demographic. So I wouldn't comfortably say there is a one size fits all. You have to ask the questions. That said, if you're a practitioner, a sole practitioner or an SME going into a workplace, I would, as part of your first meeting with a client, Ask them what they're already doing. Ask them what sessions have worked well and what hasn't worked well and see if you can understand why. If you are an SME or an individual who has a broad range of offerings, sit with the company and say, this is what I offer. How about we just run a poll and see, see what people are interested in? Just to try and get your foot through the door. Once you've got your foot through the door, you can build upon it. Bringing it back to price point. This is where if I take, when I spoke to those practitioners before we started building OpenMind, if I take yoga, we saw the price point for a yoga class, a 60-minute yoga class, range from £23 an hour up to £800 an hour. 
That £800 was less than the 1%. But it's worth noting, people and individuals have charged what they want and what they feel comfortable with asking to workplaces. And workplaces have paid what they feel comfortable for the value of what they deem that session to be. I think times have changed since we did those interviews back in 2018, where there's so much more content and ability to search for price points and understanding price points. I'm taking yoga as an example to understand what that price point is. For yoga class now, we're seeing the average being between about 70 and 80 pounds an hour for a corporate class. There's still sessions above and below that range. For a workshop, a well-being workshop on something, again, that price point varies. From We've seen from 250, 250 pounds up to a few thousand pounds. We've seen it vary depending on location in the country. We've seen it vary from providers pitching a different price depending on the company they're working at. So one is, I, as an individual practitioner, I would set a boundary for your price. What are you comfortable to charge for the value you're delivering? That should be your lower end. Everything else on top of that should be treated as a bonus. And you can scale up your price depending on the type of delivery. Is it on-site? Am I having to travel? Is there a travel fee included? Is it virtual? If it's virtual, how many people is it to? Um, is, if it's virtual, is it being recorded? Can I add a cost to that if it's recorded? So I would start with, as an individual, what do you feel comfortable charging? Mm-hmm. Okay, and so when when you're approaching companies, would you recommend people try to get a multi-session or workshop commitment? Like, are there results immediately? Or I feel like sometimes it, one session isn't enough to judge whether it's successful or not in the long term. Completely agree. I think measuring success and definitions of success vary. We can talk about that. But I think first things first is, as a practitioner, are your audience gelling with you? Because your delivery style, your personality, your content it will never, may never uh, appeal to 100% of the audience, but are you appealing to the majority? And that's a decision for the organizer within a company. So for us, we normally start with a provider with one session. Is there a connection there? Can we build on it? But we, we make sure we leave the door open for more sessions with that provider and that topic. And then you can go into the programs. The risk is if you go with a program straight off, you're asking for a commitment and they don't know you. The employees don't know you. The other thing with programs is ideally you want employees or the students or the participants to attend all the sessions in the program. One thing we've learned with working with workplaces is if you go with a program, it's really hard to get that commitment. There's time pressures, project pressures, manager pressures, family pressures, things come up. So it's easier to put in shorter programs longer programs it's easier to put in programs where individuals can dip in and out of sessions they don't need to commit to the full lot when we talk to workplaces more than more than ever we talk about how do you create opportunity for employees to attend sessions so in a calendar month there might be a topic of gut health in that month we might have a session around what does a healthy gut look like? Another session around IBS and breaking that taboo around poo. Uh, we might have another session around fermentation. We might have another session around 
yoga therapy and movement and on digestion. The idea is having a variety of different sessions and they may appeal to everyone, but they may also appeal to niche demographics within your audience pool. And how do you create that opportunity? Okay. So I think we've talked a little bit about, you mentioned before using the language of business and how that's something that, especially for people who don't have a corporate background, might not be overly confident in doing and might not have any idea what that is. So when it comes to actually like making the pitch, I'm curious, both who should we be looking for? Like which person at the company is that the head of HR? Is that the actual owner on a smaller company? And like, how should we be structuring the pitch if we're reaching out to them and wanting to approach them with a workshop or a series of program like this? The person to approach varies depending on the size of the organization. So for us, we look at HR directors, HR managers, people directors, people leads, all within the HR function. We also look at well-being leads, well-being managers. They don't well-being leads sometimes don't sit within the HR function, they sit within the business. So the, the difference there is they can resonate with most people on the ground, so they it's easier to build a rapport or connection. And then with SMEs and smaller businesses, it's easier to directly approach either the MD, the managing director, a director, or, or the financial director within the company, and just go straight to the decision maker. I say that, but it's also, if you already have a community, and a lot of wellbeing practitioners we know already have communities from Previously, whether it's from studios, online presences, membership models, if you've got a community, how can they help you? So people will be from all industries and walks of lives in your community. How can they introduce you to their workplace? So an example, we, the way we work as a company is we've not spent any money on marketing really we've not done marketing campaigns we've not done facebook ads or instagram ads what we've done is ask our partners can you introduce us to a workplace you work with what by doing that we can take your admin challenges out and we can manage it all for you but we'll also give you 20 percent of our gross profit over the first year on anything else we sell to that workplace so Similarly, how do you empower your, your community, your connections? How can you empower them? Whether that's an incentivization, if you can introduce me to your workplace, I'll give you £100 once I've got my first sale. So you're not at a loss. You've done it after, after, after your first sale. Or you can incentivize further and say, I'll share anything I make with you over a period of time. So in terms of approach, two ways. One is use your community. The other one is approach the wellness wellness lead within a company or HR director or someone in the people space. In terms of how you approach them, again, stick to what you feel most comfortable with. If you've never done LinkedIn campaigning, email campaigning, it's very easy to hire a marketeer and spend loads of money to do that. It's one way, it does work, but I will caution the market for marketing to those professionals is very saturated at the moment and it just creates noise. If you can get a warm introduction through a connection, you'll be far more successful. So that's finding the individual and uh, approaching the business. In terms of the pitch, stay true to what you understand as the benefits of your discipline, whether it's yoga, whether it's nutrition. 
talk about if you Google mental health and the impact of mental health on the UK economy, you'll see see the staggering stats around that. Some of the best places to go look around, have a look at Mind, the charity, and you'll see all the stats, what what it means to the UK economy and UK businesses around ill mental health or, or, or well-being. And you can use some of those stats as part of your conversation in. But then you can finish the conversation with, by delivering Modality X, we know or can see an impact in reduced stress, reduced anxiety, connection, etc. Okay. Do you know if there are any good resources for either companies that have published reports on this, where you know they introduced this type of program and saw these results? I'm sure there's blog posts and things like that that are out there. So I can share some links with you and we can put them in the comments, but definitely check out Deloitte's mental health report from January 2020. Mind and business in the community have a whole range of reports around the impact of introducing wellness programs to workplaces. Okay. Now, I know something that you've also talked before about is selling to specific individuals within a larger company and how maybe there are, especially this is maybe on the enterprise scale where there's big, you know, multinational companies that you can approach people at different teams at different levels within that company and that that's a different approach to take as well. Absolutely. And so, as I was mentioning, there's HR directors, people leads, wellness managers, every team leader or within an organization there are multiple teams especially the enterprises so each one of them may have discretionary spend and budgets each one of them may be also looking at ways to support their teams especially now especially since we're we're not all in the same offices how do we encourage social interaction how do we build connectivity between between our peers so there's a way of approaching them and it's being as direct thinking about what are the challenges and problems they're having right now around how to bring the team together and positioning sessions even if it's an awareness and educational session you can make them interactive so as an example is for for some of our clients where they're enterprises we we work both centrally with the central hr team but we also work at team level and we approach those teams around asking what are you doing at a team level for well-being? How are you making it personalized to the 10, 15 people in your team? Have you asked them what they need for their support right now? Whether that's a, a mindful creativity session or a session around boundaries. It's the biggest theme in November, December of this year as a result of COVID and working from home we've seen is the, the need to support employees and employers around how to create healthy boundaries and how to create a sense of permission for employees to say no. Say no to creating more boundaries or going into endless hours of work. By proposing wellness activities, they can create protected times during the day, sponsored by the workplace, sponsored by your manager. You've got the support for employees to take time off. One way of positioning it. The other way of positioning it, it is by having wellness sessions, you're empowering your employees to start looking after themselves, the self-care. That will have a positive impact long-term around productivity, but it's also the right thing to do. Everyone's having a tough time at the moment. So I don't want to use the phrase play on empathy, but we all have to be empathetic and we're all going through different things and we all need different 
things to support us right now. So think about how you can empathize with, with them, either on a personal level, a professional level from your past experiences, as I know many wellness practitioners have come from other careers as well, but also just empathize on what's going on right now. How can you provide something that can help them? Now, what about when it comes to, let's say you have got an engagement, whether that's a single session or, you know, a multi-session kind of engagement, and you've delivered that, what can you do as a practitioner to kind of increase the value to the business? I know that you've talked about reporting back on the the benefits and maybe collecting uh, survey information and things like that, as well as community you talk a lot about. So can you share like what you're seeing practitioners, maybe some of the ones who are, are having the most success, how they're adding even more value than the sessions themselves back into these businesses? As practitioners, I think one easy opportunity many miss is collecting feedback. And that could be a survey that is sent out in the session to people. You can send it out as a survey afterwards, but if you ping the link in a, in a, in a window or in a live session and ask them to complete it now, you'll get real-time feedback. If you send an email after, afterwards, the, the uptake is much lower. But what you can do with that feedback is you've then got something tangible to go back to the buyer, the wellness lead, to say, this is what your people have said. The best sales material is stuff from that own workplace. So by using stats and data from their own workplace, whether it's sentiment and feedback. So three questions that come to mind are, one, how are you feeling right now, to put in a survey? Two, what was the feedback on the provider so, or the professional? How would you rate the quality of that professional? And three, free text. Feel free to leave your thoughts, feelings, emotions around what you found about that session. With those three points, you have an insight into what that individual's going through, what they thought about your session, and free text and sentiment. And you can tell a lot from the sentiment side of things. As a practitioner, you, you don't need to be a wizard at Excel. But you can probably find a tool on Google to do this. But if you put it into Excel and click the charts button, you can quickly whiz up some charts and graphs and send that back to the company. What it does for them is create an immediate justification for being able to fund more of the same sessions. I think that's one trick I think everyone should be able to do. We should all be asking for feedback, not only from a, a way of selling, but also from a personal development standpoint. The second part is community. When I started exploring wellness in 2018, I set out to create an interest group, as we called it. We called it, created it and called it an interest group. The idea of that was to create opportunity for employees to access a certain wellness session. What we didn't realize was over time, that became a safe space. And you can't just say it's a safe space for the sake of it's a safe space. It has to be culturally safe. And what we saw was people became supportive of each other within that space. And then that naturally became a community. So it's thinking about how can you form those communities, whether they're within workplaces or just in your own ecosystems, whether that's on a Facebook group, whether that's in a chat, whether that's in a newsletter. How can you start adding value and creating a safe space for both yourself to share what you do and the impacts you're having, but also for those who are receiving your offerings to share what they're finding. In, in workplaces, companies have social media walls, whether that's a Slack channel, Microsoft Teams, Yammer, Facebook, there's hundreds out there. But 
what they can of, often do is create a space for the employees who may be new to a certain wellness modality to try things and explore and see what the conversation is safely. In, in workplaces, one of the things we're seeing is, especially with virtual delivery, it creates opportunity for those who haven't necessarily taken part in a wellness session, whether that's out of fear or access or just it's never been an interest. By seeing these communities and seeing the type of language and inclusivity they're creating, it creates an opportunity for them to give it a go. Every Sunday, I send out my Listen Up newsletter to over a thousand entrepreneurs, marketers, and creatives who are seeking to grow an audience around work that means something. Each week features an article to help you reframe how you're approaching your business, along with five things I discovered the previous week that I think might help you in your life and business. Instead of another tactic or strategy to add to your never-ending to-do list, the newsletter is meant to help you rise above the noise and look at your work from a new perspective. It's best consumed sitting somewhere cozy with a cup of coffee in your hand, which is exactly how I write it. Writing this newsletter is my very favorite thing I do in my business, and it's something I'm truly proud to create and share. I'd be honored to send it to you, and you can sign up at betterwellness.biz newsletter. I know that you've also said before when we've talked that a lot of times you've seen these communities have built within companies who become really attached to that specific practitioner who maybe it's somebody who is, uh, we've used the example of uh, providing uh, yoga sessions every so often. And that when that person might leave and somebody else might come in, they'll be asking, but wait, where's where's so-and-so who was delivering this for a while? And uh, you've also talked about how that can often lead for practitioners into individual one-on-one clients as well. So is that something that's quite common that you're seeing when people get into these kind of corporate uh, situations? In a nutshell, yes. One of the things with community and the opportunity individual practitioners have with working with corporates is you have immediate access to lots of people. You have an audience. And as an individual, I think there's an acceptance of you won't please everyone, but you only need to please a few and support a few. And if you're making the smallest impact to that one or two people, the two individuals, it's those individuals who will likely go, I've really found that beneficial. I will go go and check out so-and-so's website, see if they've got a, a weekly on, ongoing session. Can I book a one-to-one session? Have they got a membership model? We've definitely seen that with some of our practitioners and how we work with corporates. I think by creating that community, so at the start of your sessions, if you've got the opportunity, have the small talk at the start and end. Start building rapport. because people remember that bit that's the bit that creates stickiness so that's the bit that encourages the feedback but also encourages the decision maker to bring you back again because of feedback saying so diving back to a previous part of this conversation around pricing if you have created that stickiness you then have the opportunity of going let's book a 10 session series and i'll give you a small discount but again, that creates stability for both the practitioner, but also creates it makes the admin easier for the company, but also creates some stability and some structure in terms of what you can then deliver and the long-term impact you can have. Awesome. So one of the things that I uh, always like to say about this show is that it's a show 
that is disguised as a show about building better wellness businesses, but is really about building a better world. And I think that you and your company really work on kind of multiple sides of that, both uh, within larger companies as well as on the practitioner side. So I'm curious when you hear building better, that phrase, like what comes to mind for you in the context of either business or just life and the world in general? For me, building better is all around having a social impact. Setting out on this journey, I knew we would have to align with both my personal values and that's essentially shaped our company values as part of that. And the third value is all around social impact. Are we having a positive impact on both the workplaces we're supporting, the well-being practitioners and the planet? It's back to people, purpose and planet. And with the planet aspect, it's also looking at are we driving the right positive shift? The reason I talked about local earlier and supporting local communities is we don't want practitioners traveling halfway across the country to deliver a workshop when there's someone local who is qualified to do it as well, because that just creates a bigger carbon footprint. So there, there's so many angles, as you touched on, in terms of when we are looking at building and supporting workplaces and practitioners What's the knock-on effects, whether it's the positive impact, but also the potential negative impacts as well? I think as part of the business is, yes, we're a for-profit, how do we make money? But also, what are we doing to give back to our communities? So how are we supporting charity schools, organisations who, can, who can't necessarily afford well-being? Are we, are we being smart enough in terms of using commercial models to be able to support those organizations as well. I'm proud to say that we we are. We, we are challenging how we're thinking about how to support those organizations in the short term, but also the long term. And the long term is going to take some time to build, but it's there in our ethos. Just thinking about that phrase again, the second part is around accessibility. Well-being shouldn't be a luxury for people. It should be accessible to everyone and I realized that when I was working in in my previous job where we were fortunate it's a very good company we had lots of perks the impact on our health from the way we worked and the culture was detrimental and how do we create more accountability as a society for ourselves around wellness so part of accessibility is back to affordability it's one of those sad realities where money is the driving factor for, for a lot of things. So even though you may have the best intention, the biggest barrier to entry, whether it's a company doing something or an individual, is money. So how can we remove those barriers? And again, we've been thinking creatively and have models to remove those barriers again. But similar to that, the affordability side is back to the practitioner. Are we paying and are the practitioners charging the right amount for the value they're delivering? I personally have the opinion the answer is no right now. It's such a broad disparity in, in prices at the moment and rates for the value. And it's, it's a challenge for workplaces, frankly, to understand what's good and what's not. And a lot of them base it on price, which isn't necessarily the answer in terms of quality and effectiveness. The first value, so I've said our values backwards, social impact, accessibility, the first value is community. I think to build a better, better world and be better, 
how can we start supporting communities, whether it's a practitioner's community, whether it's a local community centre, whether it's creating lots of micro-communities within a workplace so it creates a sense of belonging and empowerment and engagement for individuals. How do we do that? You can find out more about OpenMind at openmindwellbeing.co.uk and further connect with Ash on LinkedIn. You can find links to both of those plus everything else we mentioned in the show notes for this episode at betterwellness.biz slash 027. This episode was produced by our amazing team at Counterweight Creative. Big thanks in particular to Tom Kelly for sound engineering support, Karina Penner for her work on the show notes, Ari Lombardozzi for his help with video editing, and Casey Bowen and Francesca Mamlin for their behind-the-scenes work, keeping everything running smoothly and on schedule. Finally, to you listening, thank you so much for spending this time with me, and until next time, keep building better.